Hello, everybody, and welcome to the SIG Marxism Podcast. I'm your host, Sam. This episode, as always, will be edited by Rich. Thank you, Rich. Of course, today I'm going to be joined by Alex, and returning guests will be Gareth from Death Sentence Podcast. If you haven't checked out Death Sentence, please do immediately, or do so right now, and then come back to this podcast, because it's a great podcast. Uh, Gareth, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing good. i got a, a long-ass weird book to read, but um, I've been doing lots of pods lately i did a double episode last week lots of good stuff going on so yeah feeling good and productive and i also got to read uh, an actual good horse book so (laughs) it's all coming up millhouse for me Mm -hmm. yeah we'll have to have to pick one of the the, like the iconic ones i guess like probably like leeching or first heretic and we'll bring you on so that way you can actually be like very excited instead of just like oh that was all right I think it was slightly better than all right. It was uh, above average for a horse book, you know, not for like books in general. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but we'll get into that because I have I have thoughts. All right, uh, sounds good. Alex, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm okay. Um, I'm a little bit flustered uh, because I <laughs> got the recording time wrong and I had to uh, to rush back from the gym. Though I did have an experience where I um. I sort of accidentally got a, a larger kind of insight into the world of 40k. Bear with me on this. Um, I've never really understood why, you know, I've, I've always had this kind of whiplash about uh, descriptions of Primarchs being these glorious figures. And they're, they're really just like 10 feet tall books, right? And they're just slightly taller than everyone else. And so people kind of worship them. Mm. Um, whereas I, I uh, did some... I worked in on squats with a uh, with a lovely guy who just happened to be significantly shorter than me, and I felt like a Primark with a with a space marine. Um, I I kind of had to, um, to to crouch to kind of get the bar back down to the position. What I I've I've now dubbed a like a, a squat curtsy, a squirtsy, um, and yeah, you know, um, I I now am completely on board with this uh, this kind of depiction of Primarks because I experienced it myself. Right? Mm. I'm going to send that to some uh, incel forums and just try and confirm everything they feel about themselves, that they are just like short little manlets and you are a, a god for being like slightly above average height or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, what I'm really implying is that uh, everyone's a space marine. It's just I'm a Primark. As I say, you literally just... Uh... You literally just interjected that story so that way you could add, you could say squirtsy on the air, What is, didn't you? A, a little bit, yes. Um... Yeah, like, that's what that's what it sounded like. When I get a pun in my brain, I, I kind of have to uh, excise it. Like it, it's like bloodletting. I have to open my veins and let it pour out. <laughs> Alrighty, uh, sounds good. Uh, today we are talking about the final book in the kind of Loken trilogy. Certainly not the final book in the Horus Heresy. There's an infinite number of those, and it'll probably never actually end. Uh, we are talking about Galaxy and Flames by Ben Counter, not Graham McNeil that I've said several times in this podcast, and. I've kind of always thought that for a reason. I don't know why. I had like a little Mandela effect thing going on where my whole world was shifted. And I'm like, Alex pointed out rightfully, that's like this book was written by Ben Counter and not Graham McNeil. So that was a fun little uh, out-of-body experience. 
Uh, so before we get on to full-on spoilers, uh, same thing as we will do last time on the uh, False Gods episode, we'll give each each uh, our appropriation of what we thought of the book without getting into plot details too much. Uh, we'll do a general summary right after giving our opinions, and then we will go into full-on spoilers. As I said, same thing as last time and all the other big Bad Daddy Chronicles, we are going to get full-on spoiler. We'll give one last warning before we do, but we will leave no rock unturned. So, Gareth, um, you weren't too happy with False Gods, but how did uh, Galaxy and Flames treat you? Yeah, it was um, far, far better than False Gods. Um, I think... Yeah, False Gods was disappointing because you had the pivotal point of the entire Warhammer 40k universe, and it was just kind of disappointing. Here you've got like the fallout of that, and and like some really significant stuff happening, uh, especially when you know it, it, the the choice to to go traitor or loyalist is presented to like four entire legions of of Astartes. Sorry, I almost called them Space Marines there. So maybe want to cut. <laughs> But uh, yeah, and yeah, so you've got like brother fighting brother. You've got like these bigger, way bigger themes. There's less like uh, psychic deus ex machina stuff going on. There's less uh, just random choices being made that affect the entire galaxy for the next 10,000 years. Yeah, it, and it, feel, it feels more grounded and just the writing is better. Like the word to word writing is better than... Um, False. Uh, it was Graham Neal who wrote False Gods, right? It was. Yep. Yeah. Just uh, Ben Counter is just a better pro stylist. I mean, he's. Don't get me wrong. He's not good. Um, <laughs> you know, you don't write Horace Heresy novels because you're a potential Booker Prize winner. You know, he's. You know, he's workmanlike. Is uh, the best way to describe the post. He's, and- he's a journeyman pro stylist. Yeah. And the world needs its journeyman. Not not everyone exactly. can be a great auteur. Huh? Yeah, you need to, you need these guys to write your your Warhammer books. You need them to write Halo, not video game novels, mm. tons of Star Wars novels. Sure, you, you need these guys. These these are guys in the trenches. They're the they're the death guard of writing. They no no flash. They just grimly walk towards the enemy. Which is readers, <laughs> just 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 the, just to annihilate readers once and for all. Yeah. Do you think uh, we should what... put that on the cover? You know, this book will grimly walk towards you, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and eventually yeah. annihilate you. Yeah. That, oh, that'll I, be I, that'll be the episode cover. We'll just be like the, our three faces as Death Guard, just like <laughs> slowly walking into um, a, a bad JPEG of Galaxy and Flames, just stoically walking into it as it's like about to virus bomb us. But I've I've actually never smiled because I've I've heard that smiling is beta, so um, mm. that would probably be my ideal thing. But uh, I also instead of reading this book, I listened to it on audio book. Yeah, well, and uh, that was we, different. We will get to the one particular detail that I know both you and Alex did. Uh, <laughs> I I read it um, after Alex's opinions. We will mention it, <laughs> uh, Alex. What did you think of this book, and how did you feel about it in comparison to False Gods? Well, I'm I'm rubbing my hands in glee because uh, disagreement and conflict is the life lifeblood of podcasting, and I um I didn't I actually think I preferred False Gods to this. Um, there were what? a lot of issues with False Gods, <laughs> and I think the thing we can sum up with uh, between them is Graham McNeil did not demonstrate a good understanding of women in his book. Um, ben Counter does not demonstrate a good understanding of narrative in this book. Um, it's mm. a very simple story 
with very evident structural beats and yet manages to make some really strange decisions which seem almost like someone was trying to, uh, to, to to use a word that has now become a buzzword because of The Last Jedi and the conflicting sides of there to subvert expectations. Um, hmm. If you're being really charitable by like having the protagonist of the entire trilogy get shunted out and someone who was a bit player kind of takes his place or having various kind of uh, culminating conflicts between characters that have been building up either resolve in um, dissatisfying and kind of empty ways whereas other parts of, of the story are blown up into and, and given more time than was really necess- necessitated. Um, I, overall, like it, it had fun moments. Um, but I would say this book is kind of mediocre, and I appreciated False Gods at least, with its wildly uneven and often kind of poor execution. It was trying to do some... Its plot was dealing with some interesting things that it often kind of floundered. Whereas here, as you say, it's it's a workman-like thing to achieve, and is achieved in a... Well, it's, ba- it's barely achieved, in my opinion, in a kind of... Un, not necessarily unshowy, but unimpressive way. Hmm. Okay, All right. Counterpoint, you're completely wrong, and we stand Ben Counter. Uh, end of podcast. Uh, well, we, well, we'll have to read Thousand Sons, which is the uh, a good Graham McNeil novel. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm going to have to disagree with you there, Alex. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed Galaxy and Flames. Like like Gareth said, I don't think it's an excellent book, but it's kind of everything that I want from a Black Library book. You know, uh, it, it's obviously kind of not like Horus Rising, which um, utilizes the genre very well to not only like uh, detail excellent characters, uh, interesting plot points, and a message, as we talked about on our first Bad Daddy Chronicles. Um, but this one was kind of just like it, and no, it like worked within the genre very well. Uh, to me, reading Galaxy of Flames was basically like reading uh, a fun soap opera. Like you kind of like know all the beats and stuff, and it's less about twists and turns like i didn't think it was there's kind of um trying to undercut expectations sort of deal uh i think the book was like pretty obvious about like what it was trying to set up and like where it was going to go every time but you know it's doing this in this grandiose fashion um you know high emotion high stakes uh all our characters are kind of that there's a lot of dramatic irony going on where we realize what's going to happen to the characters or we realize what they're walking into the sort of deal and kind of like this uh, dark, morose uh, dirge that we know we're just kind of like slowly but surely approaching. Because as I've, as we, we've already discussed, like in False Gods, we already know that Horus turns to traitor. And, but however, some of the characters still don't. And we as the reader are just kind of left wondering and uh, disappointed and sad that all these characters that we've grown so attached to and we've read about are kind of like walking inevitably into their doom, into the yearning maw of their own annihilation. Well, I can at least agree with you on on sort of calling it a soap opera, because it really did remind me of the Archer's Christmas episode where the guy falls <laughs> off a roof. Um, it, it kind of had that sense of drama. Istvan was very much just a guy falling off a roof and, and dying. I think that, that's how it felt to me. <laughs> See, I didn't think it was uh, dark and morose. I, I thought it was kind of, compared to... Well, the ending is. Yeah, okay. The ending is dark because bad things happen to good people. But in terms of like how it it looks, like if you imagine it in the head, most of it's set on this like beautiful temple world where there's like jade Mm. spires and marble everything. And the other parts are set in these gigantic throne rooms and weapons caves. And like a big chunk of the characters are these 
very clearly queer coded like pretty boys oh, who are yeah yeah it, it is definitely the gayest uh of the horus books so far which makes I it the mean, best but yeah yeah exactly um yeah Lu- I'm Lucius is logic. absolutely the the disaster bisexual we deserve um fulgrim just daddy and um yeah garon garon tarvitz are the um the broke back mountain sort of deal where they can't quit well, each other yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Like Tarvitz is the best part of the book. I think we can all agree this. Mm. Yeah, Tarvitz. Tarvitz yeah. Well, I, I, I don't mean like a darker morose in the sense that you know, like setting. Uh, in terms of setting, you know, you get a lot, a good variety of locations. Like we're not stuck in a swamp, like False Gods is for ninety percent of its story. I, I just kind of mean the more. I guess maybe my my mind was kind of tinted because I already I'm very well familiar with the events of Galaxy and Flames, so maybe it was. Uh, affected by that knowledge that's kind of like everything's a lot has like a lot more tinge of tragedy than the book intended but Mm. for me it it still kind of had like a a wistful dirge kind of like slowly playing off like all your favorite characters as they walk into their inevitable doom yeah i I mean i love an inevitable inevitable doom story like when characters know know they're gonna die they're going out for a good cause they make one last cowboy speech before Going into enemy fire one last time. That that's how you get me interested. I love that shit. Yep, yeah. Uh all right. So that is what our thoughts on the book. Um, so just a straight yes or no, would you recommend it to uh who would you recommend it to? Uh Gareth, go ahead. Would you recommend the book? And who would you recommend it to if you were? fifteen uh, year old me, um <laughs> into Warhammer, kind of struggling with sexuality. Um most ninety percent resolved at that point, but um, yeah, still needs to see some like big anime pretty boys fight each other a bit. And um, yeah, fifteen year old me would be would be totally into this. Alex, um, basically, if if you're going to be reading the Horus Heresy, this is kind of you kind of need to know this. Uh, I yeah, or, or if you're a fan of battle scenes, really, because that's kind of what this this book sort of uh, subsists on. Doesn't really have the the character drama that was so good in Horus Rising and was attempted <laughs> in False Gods. <laughs> so mm. uh, yeah, uh, like the, 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 yeah, if if you don't mind reading a slightly mediocre book, then sure, it's 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 fine. Uh, I Ouch. would recommend <laughs> I would recommend this book. Um, obviously not to general readers like I would Horus Rising, but if you're a fan of Black Library or just kind of Warhammer 40k in general, and you enjoy Fun, fun character interplay, uh, nice space melodrama, and a little. And you don't mind a little bit of a sci-fi space opera tragedy in your stories. Then I would wholeheartedly recommend uh, Galaxy and Flame. Um, so that would be Horse Rising, definite yes. False Gods, no, and Galaxy and Flames would also be a yes. So uh, let's get on to the audio book before going full spoilers. There was a particular character that <laughs> um, was not portrayed in the best light, uh, the astropath, Ingmay Singh. Hmm. Now, oh, Alex yeah. and Gareth, uh, you were the ones who read the audiobook. I read. I was reading the uh, digital copy of it, so I cannot comment on this. Uh, I'll let you two go at why, why did you have a problem with Ingmay Singh and how she I mean, was portrayed in the audiobook? I mean, the only way... I could adequately explain would be to do an impression and that would be really, really racist. So I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to have to ensure people that because the character is named Ing Mei Sing, and that sounds kind of Asian, uh, the 
I forget his name. It's um, like Toby. The, Toby something. Toby something. Yeah, Toby Young, and um, that's not Toby Young. And um, yeah, he he goes in this like full on or like pan oriental accent that's just uh, it's like it's it's like very racist. It's yeah, it's the whole me so sorry bit. It's oh yeah, it you you can't really uh, talk about it without going in like doing that bit from Full Metal Jacket. I think at this point we should say, Rich, roll the clip. Um. No, whispered Ingmay Singh. I am already dead. I know this. Yeah. Uh, just to kind of like expand on this a little bit, there's a lot of um, Asian or Asian-coded characters in the Warhammer 40k universe. Uh, we could probably do a whole episode on just like general Orientalism in the, whole, the universe and how it's kind of exploited, but... Uh, the audiobooks in particular, um, whenever like the White Scars, which is my experience, or you do the Damocles, uh, anything involving the White Scars, um, for some reason or another, they decided that there weren't any Asian people of like Mongolian, Japanese, or Chinese descent to to read it, or they decide like they can't just you know read it in a normal voice. Uh, they for some reason have to put on this fake Orientalist accent that's like as horrible of a stereotype as you can like the white scars in the sigilite uh one of the audiobooks uh <laughs> just just listening to the white scars and it's just the most stereotypical like what a white otaku would kind of like do with like the the bad arm the the bad accent and stuff and yeah the, f- the full metal jacket sort of stuff and mm, just like yeah. the, the worst 80s caricature of a japanese person and you could before- possibly imagine I think also th- this is not something we're blaming Ben Counter for. Um, th- I mean, this this no, goes... that's that's out of Ben Counter's hand. He has no control over. Yes, that. E- exactly. Um, uh, so I don't know if, if Toby Longworth or perhaps the direction. Uh, and I mean, I have a feeling that it it is just uh, a desire to have lots of varied voices because that's sort of interesting, and you can sort of tell, and and, and with no kind of consideration for what this actually entails. Like you, I mean, and, he does I mean, a silly voice for Khan as well, which is yeah, kind of does... like this. He does like the um, the Deaf Guardian Russian for some reason, and he he's generally very good at like he makes every character sound different. Like um, Loken has sounds like Jared Butler because he's the big hero, mm-hmm. and uh, Lucius sounds like um, kind of James from Team Rocket because he should. And um, you know, Idolon sounds as horrible as you would want him to sound. <laughs> yeah, and um, oh, what's his name? Uh, the the word bearer guy, uh, I forget his name now. Erebus. 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 Yeah. He, he and Fabius Bile and people, you know, people who are obviously baddies. He makes yeah. he does in a very mustache twirling baddie voice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we get we got some good Fabius Bile scenes in this. So if you know if you if you if you're Bile Bilehead, <laughs> then uh, you, you get you get a good scene with him doing some freaky shit with uh, tubes and such. Um, <laughs> Yeah, for my my bar boys out there, <laughs> <laughs> the bar boys. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just disappointing that uh, I mean, like we've talked about the problem of representation in general, both kind of uh, Warhammer forty k in particular. It's just disappointing that somehow somewhere in the GW budget they can't find the budget of like an actual they like they never decided to consult an actual person of like East Asian descent for what they're going for because it's always very ori- general orientalist like not very specific mm, yeah and and there's you know there's all Racist. the problems with, with the Tao and how they're yes. portrayed as like this pan-asian 
kind of empire. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and they're duplicitous and conformist and stuff. And it's very, yeah. I know you, you did it, Tau last episode, so I don't want to relitigate the, the Tau empire. But Yeah. Um, but uh, 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 before we go on to spoiler, spoilers, uh, fun fact, I had only realized this in, in like a year or two. Uh, the person who does all of the toy, the the Tau's voices in Dawn of War One is a white guy. Uh, <laughs> in case you were ever wondering uh, who was doing those that faux Japanese accent, uh, it's a white guy, oh, and all cool. the voice actors are white guys. Well, so. yeah, they're gonna be. Oh, and speaking yeah. of voices, there, there's some very good uh, musical cues in between uh, chapters in this. So I'm kind of liking like the massively overblown choral music. In at the start and between the books, this that's mm. feeling that there's a, a really nice touch. All right, alrighty. Um, any last spoiler free things you want to add before we get into you know full on plot summary in spoiler territory? Um, Alex is wrong, this is decent. <laughs> uh, we, we can all agree to that. Uh, Alex is wrong, yeah. Alex is always wrong, and uh, yeah, Rich cut out his pun. <laughs> Alrighty, so this, uh, like I said, we will be going full spoilers. Uh, if you haven't read the book, turn away now, or if you don't really care, um, listen to Free Hood. But Gareth and I have both recommended Please this book. Turn away if you haven't listened, but uh, don't yeah, close your eyes. The audio program, Sam. Yeah, you know what I mean by ter- figuratively <laughs> turn away. You're just you're just trying to recreate fire emoji again with me. So hopefully you'll get <laughs> hoping you'll get me so flustered again. Let's see if I can rekindle it. Uh, you can try. But you will fail. Alrighty, so going full spoiler territory. Uh, so we kind of have, as all of these horse heresy books are, they're broken up into three parts. Uh, the, f- the first one kind of being the longest again, second being middleless, and third one being the shortest. So the first one's kind of reestablishing most of our characters, um, Targadon, Loken, uh, and as Alex little mentioned before, that Tarvitz actually winds up being a more key character. And Ben Counter actually winds up making the, the Desiree with uh, Jonah Arukan and uh, Titus Kassar. Uh, they actually have like a more significant role to play in this um, in this move in this book than they even did in the book that where they they were introduced. So yeah, they were like a complete sort of dead end plot element in uh, False Gods. Uh, mm. Obviously, in in effort of setting up this, but they yeah. could have really been introduced to here without that much extra work being done because all you really need to know is that uh, titus is a uh, is a is a faithful of the uh, the the cult of the what is it the divinitatus something yes exactly um and so he's kind of the faithful of the cult of the emperor and then uh Arukan is an ambitious kind of top gun-esque uh ladder climber be, yeah, yeah yeah he and he wants to um uh, be the uh, the princeps of a titan. Yeah, so we kind of have a few threats going on. We have L- uh, Loken and Torgadon kind of realizing that they've been totally exiled away from the rest of their battle brothers, that um, the influence of Erebus and the War Master have kind of quarantined themselves away from that, and there's been a, a noticeable shift and a rift in the uh, sons of, now Sons of Horus. Uh, Tarvitz is kind of He's, he's allowed to like build up a little bit more as a character, so I think that was really interesting. Uh, and the big plot point that that's really kind of like actually like stuff changing that we didn't know is uh, the the signifying of Euphrates Keeler of uh, the Remembrancer as the saint, as she is now known by the cult of the Lactitio Divinatus, and that Chiral mm-hmm. Cinderman, uh, the uh, itinerator, uh, iterator, uh, he's going from skeptic to full on believer is 
kind of his uh that's his arc that happens very quickly and very early on and it kind of becomes the protection of the Freddy killer sort of deal hmm. also his voice is kind of like michael kane in the book in the audiobook so if you need to imagine his voice it's, it's sort of like a mid mid career michael kane oh so does 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 he yell at one point you're only supposed to blow the bloody hollow deck off you bastard! Um, you got there before me. <laughs> yeah, except no, I was going to do the voice. Follow deck of Star mind. Trek, but um, <laughs> no, he does not. It's, it's like that subdued. It's like my name is Michael Caine, kind of like like not full. My name is Michael Caine thing. It's like it's like uh, when when he was like Alfred in the Batman films, kind of like very very subdued, very regal. Yeah, yeah, kind of kind of like that. I I, I was feeling that. I, I like that. It's a mm-hmm. good touch. All right. Yeah, and basically we know the uh, Legion is approaching uh, Isfahan along with uh, four other legions, the Emperor's children, well three other legions, the Emperor's children, the world leaders and the Death Guard. Um did, did anyone sort of enjoy the uh the the very on the nose descriptions of the ships that are kind of like basically Freudian <laughs> um representations of the Legion phallic representation yeah, the, the Legion's monolithic ideology that you've got. Uh, I, I enjoyed that because, like, that's very pulpy. And it's, mm. I like, the Warhammer 40k universe is not exactly known for being subtle in any way. So I yeah, kind I was, of, I enjoyed the, the, it. It's fun. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that, to me, is a fun detail. Um, Before we get onto our feelings at part one, are there any plot summary points that I missed? That's kind of, like, the big gist. It's more about, like, big uh, character beats and emotional arcs. Other like I feel like most of the plot happens with uh, like Tishio Divinatus, uh, Kyle Sinderman, and uh, the kind of like the oncoming of the new saint. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's some nice bits where the um, Emperor's children go like just absolutely mercs and orcs on a on a satellite. I think it is, and we get a, a good bit of like showing them in action and developing their characters by having them do things instead of say things would be described. We see mm. Lucius like with his power sword, just like chopping through guys, and just no, get a nice introduction to him. So I've appreciated that. Mm. Well, it's actually interesting you say introduction because he was introduced in um, Horus Rising. Uh, Lucius is actually kind of built up a lot more in uh, Galaxy of Flames. He's given a lot more of a character, and he's given a exactly. pseudo arc. I mean, it's kind yeah, of like he- you you see where he's going by part three, but uh, he's allowed to be a much more interesting character. Mm. Or more yeah, fun kind of, character. I was kind of hoping he was gonna he was gonna stay loyalist and just be like a kind of a, a Vegeta type. You know, he's obviously a bad guy, but he's just found himself on the good guy's side. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it was his not personality traits are Torgazan esque, but with more vanity. Um, so it's not out of the realm of possibility. At least a lot of vanity. Hmm. Yes, yeah. yes, that's true. Um, yeah. So like, uh, f- for part one, uh, the other important plot points are um. So there's the uh, well, we can pick up uh, the Cinderman um, Keeler uh, part of it, and then so uh, we've got the introduction of Kassar and Arukan um, who uh, into this kind of fold, and the right. idea is this little um, I, I team is is uh, set to uh, rescue Keeler from danger because mm. um, Cinderman's received a vision. vision. Yeah, uh, that she's in danger, and your uh, your fan favorite character pops up again, doesn't he, uh, Gareth? Who, Magard? Yes. Uh, oh yeah, big yeah. Love <laughs> our silent, uh, muscly boy. Mm. Yeah, he's uh, he's got, become even more muscly with yeah, all the gene been, seed put into him. He's been juicing. He's <laughs> gene seed has really come, and um, oh god, yeah, he's 
<laughs> come on, it obviously was. It, it's it's just come, and um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and you have to drink it. And um, yeah, he's been juicing. He's got a power armor now, and yeah, he's just kind of like a like a like a knockoff honorary, space marine. Yeah, he's just like a honorary marine at this point. He's like a yeah. <laughs> Oh, the, uh, one last plot point before we get into it. Uh, we do get a scene, and this is the part where Ing Mei Sing comes in, is where Horus basically fully pledges himself to the Dark Gods in a scene that's both more brief and more efficient than the scene in False Gods, where basically Horus is kind of like, I'm not sure I'm going to take on these... Uh, I'm not going to take on the deal with these uh, chaos gods that exist in the warp. You know, They're obviously lying. They're saying like, oh, you know, we just want the... Uh, the warp to ourselves. We don't want the, the real space that you exist in. And Horace kind of has to make a sacrifice, which is where he murders Ing Mei Sing in a little bit of excessive murder scene, but that's mm. kind of just the 40k universe. Not nearly as bad as the excessive murders in um, uh previous one. That, no. Yeah. And that, not uh, not sexual, sexualized at all, so that was a nice uh, change from his murder yeah, yeah. of um, what's her name in? Pe- Petronella. Petronella, yeah. Yeah, that was like the only part where I like I, I I backed away a little bit. I was like, "Oh, counter, don't do this!" But thankfully, it didn't last too long. So, for, unfortunately, Ing Mei Sing uh, gets the claw of Horus and sacrificed to the needs of the Chaos Gods. So, where he officially pledges himself to the four Chaos Gods, where it's gonna where he thinks that he'll be in control and he'll be able to abuse their power for his own needs rather than them using him for their needs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All right. So, yeah. Alex, what are your general thoughts on part one? Like, how did you feel about it? Uh, what did you, I mean, obviously, you thought the book was just mediocre at best. So, what, how I did mean, you feel during part one? Can we just quickly hit two other important plot points in that, which is um, uh, the Loken discovering the shrine and then also Tarvitz uh, and Eidolon. Um, so, <laughs> with uh, Tar- so, uh, sorry, um, with uh, Tarvitz, it's he witnesses uh, Eidolon leading the Empress Children uh, Strike Force, which is like a uh, preliminary attack on Istvan Extremis, uh, where they fight the War Singers for the first time. Which can probably work out what that is. Yeah, so um, Eidolon, uh, yeah, ha- fights with this psychic Susan Boyle, but um, ends up screaming her to death. Um, and this is not the most typical of Space Marine tactics, um, Tarvitz. You know, is, is rightly a little bit taken aback by, um, you know, the death by opera, uh, which Idolon <laughs> subjected. So he kind of continually presses um, Idolon about, you know, like, so uh, what? What was that? Um, and <laughs> eventually, Idolon uh, leads us into the, uh, the 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 laboratory, which uh, the Bileheads very excited about. Anyone uh, had any thoughts about that scene? Well, if you're experienced with uh, close literary analysis like I am, you'll realize that the the song they were actually the war singer and Eidolon was singing was uh, "Wake Me Up Inside" by <laughs> Evanescence. The the uh, operatic vocals and the the hard uh, almost hip hop stylings of Eidolon were came together in a kind of confluence of uh, stylistic mediums and cancel each other out. So I thought a nice touch. Um, <laughs> if you're smart, you'll understand that. But um, yeah, if you, if you have the IQ to, to get this. Um, yeah, and yeah, I'm always, always feeling uh, a good scene of mad science and test tubes and grotesque abominations in them. They're mm. always appreciated. Uh, Saul Tarvitz was 
kind of a bitch by not uh, not getting <laughs> a cool not getting cool upgrades. So I don't see why he wouldn't want awesome sonic weapons in his throat. That's kind of a no brainer, uh, but you know. So Gareth, you're pro peer peer pressure. Uh, like when your friend offers Absolutely. you like a, sh- a, sh- a shot of heroin, you're just like, yeah. It's like, why don't you take that when you're just kind of at the casual party with the boys cracking open cold ones? Yeah, you you crack open as many cold ones of heroin as you like. Because otherwise, if you don't do things that people tell you, they won't be your friends. <laughs> Which comes to bite targets in the ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and you see and you what happens saying... to people who don't uh, give in to peer pressure. They get orbital bombed. <laughs> that, that, that's the message. It's like it's like succumb to peer pressure, or you will get murdered. Yeah, so I yeah, think drink you can all learn from this. Yeah. Um, but uh, speaking of amazing bits of prose that Gareth was uh, giving such a glowing review, I love the bit where uh, Tarvit is walking out of the uh, the, the kind of fr- you know Frankenstein's room of, of various horrors, and he kind of thinks, you know, Tarvit had a suspicion that he had just been subjected to a test. Whether he passed or failed, he wasn't sure. And it's like, <laughs> so it's like, yes, we get it. It's got two meanings. You obviously failed the Eidolon test, but you're loyal to the Emperor. And it, it's kind of one of those moments where it's it's so on the nose that it's practically crushing the cartilage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I mean to be fair, Tarvitz is Tarvitz is uh good about the tactics, but he's not he's not the sharpest tool in the shed. To be well, fair, no, to be fair, he gets a, a lot fewer clues than Loken does, and he still manages to work out what's going on. And yeah, actually, if we're comparing intelligence levels, Loken at this same moment has literally walked into a demonic shrine and had like a vision of death and murder. And he kind of walks out of it and is like, <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> There's that. He's like, oh, that's a little weird. Versus Cinderman, who knows exactly, who's terrified and doesn't understand the scale of his vision. <laughs> But he does know that the free killer. Oh, we should also mention that, of course, this book starts again with "I was there the day blank." Except yeah. for this one is "I was there the day the Abhorus turned his face from the Emperor," which, uh, like, uh, it was cute when Dan Abnett did it in *Horse Rising*, and it was like kind of you could have double meeting in um, "I was there the day Horus fell" because it's like where he literally fell and then he fell to chaos. And this one, it's just like there's no subtlety about it whatsoever. That was my, my one part where I rolled my yeah. eyes. I was just like, oh, okay. Do or do we have to just keep saying this line over and over again? It, yep, it's for very... the next fifty-one books, they're all going to start like that, even the short stories. Yep, I was there. The, I was there the day uh, Rogel Doran lost his hand. Uh, yeah, it, it's kind of like when that one annoying, annoying kid that you know, or annoying person, coworker, or whatever, finally says a good joke and gets a good laugh from everybody, but then he decides to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it ad nauseum, and you're just like until it loses all of its effectiveness effectiveness and you come to loathe the original joke oh yeah and uh, yeah I, I, i'm guessing they stop that little, little tick after this um after this book right uh, yeah just, you know, just at me next time sam god i'll stop going on about the shield just <laughs> you 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 have much more annoying traits than just the shield <laughs> <laughs> um yeah uh this book uh, the, the part one was fun in terms of that it's it, this is like the this was like the high melodrama and we don't really kick into too much of the bolter porn uh like the full-on just kind of like endless fight scenes which are fun in this book um this is just kind of like lots of character work lots of you know subterfuge and kind of trying to figure out alliances, figure out what's going on. Uh, it's a simple part, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, Alex? Yeah, I'd actually, because I, I, I'm sensing that I've... I, well, I'm not sensing no two ways about it. Clearly, I, do, I wasn't as uh, positive on this book as you two were. What character relationships 
Uh, so, so let's just keep it to this this first part. Are working for you at this moment? Um, I can think of um, uh, Titus and Arukan actually working reasonably well. Like you've you've got that very clear. You know, Arukan witnesses Keela's miracle, and yet he's still in two minds of actually following the the cult. That that bit's working for me. But mm-hmm. Loken's, um, you know, is conflicted, but in a way which is contrived and mechanistic. Like he's he's literally witnessing d- demonic pacts, and then he's kind of just chilling about it. Um, yeah. So w- what's actually working in terms of the actual character work in, in the first part for you guys? Tarvitz and Lucius. I mean, uh... oh, yeah, that too. Tarvitz and Lucius and Aruka mm. and, and Jonah are my two picks. But yeah, I mean, yeah, Loken Torgadon. They've I, th- Loken's been maneuvered to this point where you like. Dude, just do something like blow up the whole ship and and end this thing. Just like yeah. you've you've gone too far, you've seen too much. Like still being a son of Horus at this point is is is. Did did I really see the film Midsummer? I haven't seen it yet. I really I want to though. Like, okay, so in in Midsummer, these bunch of American like anthropology students go to a spooky place in Sweden, and they just keep getting picked off one by one, and. When the first person dies, they should just all get in a car and go, or just run <laughs> off into the woods. But they stay and and just act normally, even though their friends are just disappearing one by one, and mm. they've seen like horrible murders in front of them. And yeah, and it, it's the same deal with Loken here. He just he's gone way too far, and he should just. I know he's been a a lunar wolf and a son of Horus for like decades at this point, but he's still seen too much. He knows bad shit is happening. And he's not. He doesn't gain anything by just like going along with the rest of the guys. Mm. It's so funny he... that you you bring up Ariaster's Midsummer because um uh, in a way uh, her- I won't spoil either like, the plot of Hereditary, which I really liked of his. But that oh, Hereditary is great. Yeah, that makes a, a a great kind of um one of the major plot points kind of rests on a character in an extreme situation that has an irrational and to many people an unbelievable response to it where they're kind of in complete denial and in a sense that i've talked to some people who've seen the film and they just can't get it through their heads and they can't understand why this person would ever react in this situation in this way and i think it's possible that someone like that i'm having that with loken really because i just don't see how someone who's so stubborn and kind of uh, as they always, they always call him a star charge, who's so straight up and down, can perceive what the uh, the you know this uh, the horrible occult stuff and just you know shirk it off. But maybe I'm being unfair in this sense that some people are unfair to hereditary for the same thing. Uh, in in my uh, if if I were to give a Loken defense, um, I think that he's kind of he's 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 paralyzed basically at this point. Uh, what, what a point kind of like from a third party perspective and obviously like outside looking in sort of deal. Uh, it's definitely, uh, yeah, Logan's obviously never been the brightest character and he's always been kind of like honor before everything. So that continues. Um, I just think that it's one of those, what do you do moment? Like you're just kind of like confronted with so much trauma and confronted with so many bitter truths that, that, uh, confront your like very reality as it is, uh, totally subverting it 
And I think he's just kind of at the point where he just doesn't even know what to do, which is why he looks forward to battle so much in Isfahan, because it's like, okay, this is something Loken knows what to do. He knows how to kill. He knows how to defeat enemies of the Emperor. But it's like, how do you defeat the enemies of the Emperor when they're your own brothers? So, yeah, it's, I mean, Talk Adam even says, like, oh, a good battle will clear your mind. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's doing something that's comfortable to... And like they're like battle for them is an escape, funnily enough. Like it's an escape from like the the personal problems, the legion legion problems that they're going. So uh for me, I think it's understandable with Loken. Like obviously he's like he's seen too much and he's seen the truth, but it's just kind of wh- what do you even do? Because it's like you're you're trapped in the vengeful spear. It's like, what are you gonna take a Thunderhawk out? Or are you gonna because at that point he doesn't know that, like, you know, with Garrow and uh, you know, the Eisenstein about to fly back to Terry, like that hasn't been established yet, so it's like where where would he go even? Yeah, in fairness, he he doesn't know enough. Uh, like yeah, uh, Tarvit gets the real important. Yeah, get Tar- to in part two. Yep, uh, that that was kind of it with part part one. It was uh, it, it's like even though it was like one of the longer parts, it felt like less not as much happened uh, as kind of like the the next parts. So uh, for part two, Alex, I'm gonna let you take the reins on this one. Okay, so um, I guess because we just mentioned Tarvit, we might as well start with um him being suspicious uh about the fact that the the spear tip um or actually sorry the, the whole assault company that is going to be dropped down to assault uh istvan uh, is comprised basically entirely of unfavored uh members of various legions the people that get side eyes from the primarch you know the the the, the less popular and less liked certainly um, unfavored by eidolon himself Exactly. And, um, you know, it, it, there's quite a nice touch for the Emperor's children where they have uh, pre-battle celebrations of victory. They're so arrogantly um, sort of certain that they'll win that mm-hmm. they have their, uh, their victory celebrations before they actually fight. <laughs> and um, yeah. it's here that uh, he That's... kind of gets the opportunity to... Um, wheel I love that character beat. Of... Yeah, yeah. He, 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 he gets to wheedle his way out of actually being... Um, in the assault force, um, he kind of mm. spares himself that honor because he knows there's no reason Eidolon would ever do that if there wasn't a, a plan at foot. Um, mm. yeah, he's very suspicious at this point after like the lab incident and, of course, the specific people who are going down to the planet. And we should specify this is Isfahn 3, not Isfahn 5. Yes. So, um, yeah, it, basically, the coral city is, is going to be what they're assaulting, um, which uh, we should mention that <laughs> it's almost so. Um, so uh, you know, completely un- unrelated, but it's a basically MacGuffin. The reason that they're actually doing it is because it, it's a, it's a rebellion. Um, someone, uh, so Prowl was like the the governor. Essentially, the same thing as what happened in False Gods, where the the governor left, forced the chaos, and rebels against the Imperium. Yeah. Um, and to be fair, the characters do uh, remark on that. They're like, "This feels a little bit too similar to Darwin." Yes, and, and then the Darwin was a little bit too similar to the Wispheads. So <laughs> The, the cyclical nature of it is partly thematic um, and then just partly. Isn't it Loken who who kind of muses on the fact that like they're going to be doing this for all of eternity? There's always going to be rebellions. They're always going to be going into slaughter people. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, the harder the emperor grasps, more people will fall out of his grip, and so on. Yeah, it, yeah. I, I think the exact phrasing used is that the crusade has to turn inwards instead of, mm-hmm. like, we were once always kind of, like, going out, pushing new boundaries, but now we're kind of, like, having to turn in on ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, and kinda... that's kind of been a thorough line throughout the, the trilogy, and that, that works as a uh, as a criticism that he kind of continually has. Mm. And it, it sort of reminded me of the, uh, the critique of fascism as, like, 
colonial instruments turning towards the imperial core. It's like things we did in Africa and we're, we're now doing in middle of like civilized Germany. So uh, mm. it, it makes, it makes sense in the larger scheme of like the totalitarian empire. Yeah. The dip in yeah. the fascism. The, the, I mean, like obviously the emperor was already fascist to be, but like even more overt fascism turning to theocratic fascism. Yeah. Yes, and um, it's it's not like this book uh, does itself any favors by continuing the trend in in false cause, which is a bit which is a little bit more complicated with um, Carcassy, but is now completely just good guys worship the emperor, bad guys rebel against the emperor. Hmm. That I mean, that dichotomy is overly simplistic, and I think that obviously we would would like something like a little bit more nuanced and stuff, but. Kind of as somebody familiar with the territory, I'm okay with it. I can definitely understand where, like, th- th- that gets old. Yeah, yeah. good guys um, should just leave and join the Tau. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I will. Maybe I will. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's just I think it's it, it's literally just missing a perspective that isn't like that's what Carcassy was, and I I feel I I kind of miss him despite his more kind of POA aspects in various parts of of False Gods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and then we kind of get where we, uh, and that's where Tarvitz, uh, because he stays back, is where he learns that the ships are planning to virus bomb uh, Isvan 3 with all of the, now, what we now realize are the loyalists of these four legions are about to basically get absolutely murdered from orbit. Mm. Oh, another great piece of voice acting is all the, uh, the tech priests and the dreadnoughts have the beep boop, I'm a robot voice. So just good old really, Rylanor. Yeah, great, great uh, voice acting for them. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I would, I would agree with that. Like Regulus, I couldn't work out whether it was augmented um, digitally or whether he was just doing it with his his mouth. Um, I think, he was, yeah, he was just doing beep boop. I'm a robot. Uh, affirmative. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it's cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, they're basically so we, spec ops the lining. Yep. Uh, so, we, so we, I, I enjoy the like the battle scene. Uh, you know, we get like a little fighting. Kind of uh, the legions are like the war leaders have just gone to full actual genocide or just murdering civilians because they love to murder civilians. Uh, the Emperor's children, the Death Guard, are just kind of like approaching the artillery with their stoic manner. And then Emperor's children, the Sons of Horrors, are kind of taking the more nuanced one of fighting, like fighting for the Coral City, which uh, that was like a fun battle scene for me. And because Tarvitz learns of the, of the virus bombing, he steals a Thunderhawk. And to go to the to crash on the Isvan Five because um, Vox communication has been entirely jammed. Uh, the sh- the capital ships and all that stuff have purposely cut off ties with the ground forces, and we kind of have the pivotal character moment where Tarvitz uh, talks with his his battle brother Nathaniel Garrow, who is introduced in this book, who's a Death Guard, to basically trust him that the legions are going to turn traitor and to save save his Thunderhawk. And that was like a fun little bee. It's just kind of like, it's like, you have to trust me above everything. Like, if you are familiar with the books, like, you know, which, which way Garrow goes, but it, it's a fun little, just kind of like, just trust me moment. I like, I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Like the little bit of tension, like, even though like I knew what was going to happen, just like the, the fighters are closing in. Tarvitz is like barely fu- piloting this Thunderhawk because he only has like rudimentary um, uh, pilot training. And Garrow's just kind of like left in his, uh, on the Eisenstein to decide like, which way he's going to take and basically whichever path he can take, he can never come back from. Yeah. I, I liked it. That, that little scene with this battle going on the ground, there's fighters in this, in, in the air. And, and finally mm-hmm. there's like a, I think 
the the Eisenstein destroys the fighters and it makes yep. it look like the Van der Hulk had been downed by the Eisenstein. Yeah, it was just, it was just a, a good piece of military sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think probably one of the stronger bits of this um, of Galaxy in Flames than um, False Gods by a long shot is I, I really enjoyed the back and forth between like the different all the different characters. Like you get the Loken perspective, the Target Tarvitz perspective, the Cinderman perspective, the Garrow's perspective. I think the way that it bounces amongst all those characters that's kind of like the that's kind of like the Black Library go to is like bouncing around like multiple characters like very rarely do you just focus have one character's perspective unless you're named Cyphus Kane, Eisenhorn or Gaunt but I, I really enjoyed the way that Counter kind of deals with balancing all these things and getting like a full scale of the war full theater of war of what's going on with Isfahan 3 and the inevitable tragedy that's going to befall the loyalists yeah and and the, like the the fighting is very legible you you know what's happening you know where these uh, like the different mm. forces are, you know what they're doing. Mm. It's it's not like the uh, the fight in the swamp in um, previous book where it's yeah, just Darwin, like, yeah. murky and which which admittedly fit the theme. The, you know, it's fighting a misty swamp against zombies, right? So, but but uh, it started yeah. to get taxing on the reader itself because of like yeah, how it long like, it went. Yeah, it was like okay, so how many people are dead? What who's where? What what is actually happening here? Mm. But, uh, in this, it's, yeah, it's all very legible, like which is a, a good thing in military sci-fi because you need you need to be able to know what the battle is. You need to have like a, a god's eye view of this whole thing, mm. otherwise it just becomes a, a, just a big mess of bolters. Yeah, and and that's why I think that's why I always like, especially like part two is kind of like where it's cemented, like where it's like even more space opera. It's like because you're getting like these grand like a strategic moment sort of deal. It's like, you know, the emperor's children are trying to break from the South, but the, but the sons of Horus are trying to break from the front. And it's like, and the, this is like the really uh, strong part with counter and Lucius because Lucius has the single-minded issue that he needs to kill Prawl, the arch trader himself. And mm-hmm. like, and that's where you really get the clarity of like the fighting because Lucius takes such pride in his martial skill that kind of like you really get like all these fun battles with like all the uh, guardsmen and then eventually with Prawl himself. Yeah, it's a, it's funny actually. I'll give Ben some credit for the actually because ha- obviously my my main issue with this is kind of um uh functioning as it is in the trilogy of not properly paying off setups. But they do um within the fighting tell a story uh, uh, actually set up Lucius's fate quite well. So when he's fighting the uh, palace guards and they're much too quick for him, so he kind of has to resort to more brutal tactics. I think that is actually an interesting little mirror uh, for what his eventual kind of uh, climactic confrontation ends up like. What? Let me see. What else happens in two? There's there's some theory, um drums going back and forth. Um, well, shall we? Um, Sort of because the the DSRI thing kind of comes up uh, most when the virus strike is hitting. Shall we kind of like oh, yes, sum up the the moment where that stuff is all going down? So obviously Tarvitz is warning everyone, and mm, uh, yeah, yeah. So we get to see a virus strike in this one, which I which I'm digging, like a full on planetary annihilation. You get like super grim dark. So which you know this this book hasn't been heavy on the grimdark so far but then we then like an entire planet gets turned to mush and explodes so yeah i was, I was feeling that um yeah so yeah. and it was cool when the the dirisere was like locking down its systems to try and like s- survive a virus strike and marines <laughs> were hunkering down and 
it was it was a cool little scene. I like that. It was fun. And, yeah, and actually, exactly. the so this is probably my favorite um, character uh, arc that is kind of concluded is in part two with the Deer Siri, and it's um, uh, Titus Kassar realizes that the um, uh, their princess was in on this all along because they, they mm. decided to lock up the Titan before the virus strikes hit and wiped out mm -hmm. uh, the loyalists. Um, however, uh, Tarvitz has made sure plenty of people are actually uh, hiding out in the catacombs. And so the Deer is booting back up again to start killing these loyalists. Um, and so Kassar kind of is like, well, I'm, I'm not into this. And he tries to pull a mutiny. But Arukan is caught between his friendship um, and his ambition to be a, uh, a Titan commander. And I didn't know how this turn would, was going to turn out. And I was actually a bit surprised, but it still landed for me. W was anyone else uh, in that camp? Yeah, I thought that was genuinely tragic. Um, uh, I, I, I mean, I've read this book before, but like even then, like I was, I was still hoping that Arukan was going to, he was, he was going to help his friend. It's like you know, he was going to choose friendship over ambition. Like that, like I, I always in my head, my hope, and then I was just like imagining the idea of the Desirees, you know, shooting down the traitors and stuff, and like what a cool scene that would be. But as we all know, uh, Arukin chooses ambition over friendship. Uh, how'd that scene play for you, Gareth? Yeah, I, I liked it for pretty much the same reasons. You know, it was it wasn't it was like a because this this is at the low point of the of the whole story arc. So you you want like nasty little little stings like this where. You think it's going to go one way, and it and it just goes completely the other way, and just just hurts. So mm -hmm. yeah, this was came at the right point, and it made sense for the characters. And yeah, it was it was a, a good conclusion to that part of the of the of basically three books uh, mm -hmm. story. So now the Derisiri is just this big hulking thing that blows stuff up now. Yeah, yeah. for for the traitors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Loken's uh, sorry, not Loken. Um, Arukan. Turn to traitor is one of the more um, believable in, in, in the sense of the the character working for me parts in the whole trilogy. Oh um, sure. So I'll give I'll give that credit. Like it's probably a more effective and more efficient um, storyline than Horus turning to chaos or <laughs> Abaddon or or various or Lucius even. Um, ah, now well, Lucius is set up because Lucius is such a vain well, jackass. No, I would I'd still say that. Um, the Arukan story is both more efficient and actually the the betrayal between um, Lucius and Arukan and then Lucius and um, uh, Tarvitz, which we'll get to in part three, are kind of mirrored in that it's a friend betraying another. But mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know about you, the <laughs> Lucius is so obviously going to turn that it didn't really strike me as tragic or inevitable. And, and Lucius is also kind of an insufferable bastard, whereas Arukan which is his character. I like Lucius. I wanted him. To, I wanted him, like I said at the start, to be a bad guy who just finds himself around good guys. Because <laughs> yeah, he would enough. be a great character to, to stick around with all these guys. I, I kind of was hoping that you know not everyone and all the good guys in the book would get bombed to dust at the end. But um, you know, if they were going to stick around, he'd be a nice addition to the to the crew. You know, he'd, mm. he'd spark drama. He'd be you know he'd make catty comments about stuff. He'd insult people's hair. He'd. Like you know, make a long Instagram story about how he's like <laughs> cutting fake friends out of his life. Uh, yeah, he's yeah. literally uh, the cat from Red Dwarf. Uh, yeah, honestly, oh, yeah. The, the 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 greatest tragedy that Lucius suffers is that he has an actual model line in the forty first century because, like, <laughs> because I mean, he does because he's a uh, important. He's well, not important, but 
a consistent character <laughs> in the 41st century. He's uh, around. <laughs> he's around, yeah, which kind of undercuts what character work could have been. And it's one of those, like, Lucius has to end up a certain way, which kind of steals a little bit of agency away from the authors. And we'll, we'll get to an even worse version of that in Khan in, in part three. But, um, so he, uh, yeah, that was the, that I mean, that was weak. <laughs> the other part of this, um, is the uh, the remembrance of storyline. Um, so yes, that's the other back half. on the uh, which is back on the vengeful spirit. Um, so Horus kind of, um, after uh, Cinderman and uh, Keeler basically broadcast a uh, a message to the entire crew saying Horus has betrayed the uh, the Imperium. Um, Horus decides to gather the remembrances in a uh, in a in a big hall for so, pr- probably just like a presentation. I don't know. Maybe he's unveiling a new product line. I think mm-hmm. that that's that's probably the most likely event. <laughs> yeah, that that's the best way to start your heresy is like with good powerpoints. Hmm. Yeah, got to put some clip art into there. Have some nice yeah. transitions, like a star wipe. Uh, you, you have Clippy show up. He goes like, "Hey, I see you're trying to betray the emperor. Can I help you with that?" <laughs> Clippy being the, the fifth Chaos God. Uh, yeah, that's kind of about it. We got like little um, iter- iterator uh, Keeler, the Saint, Lictitio Davinonatus part. And that's kind of where we get to the beginning of the end, or the end of my beginnings, as a poet Corey Taylor once said. Yeah, so um, Keeler and Tinderman and, and that crew uh, escape with the help of um, basically the back in my day. Uh, I, I act in crews, yeah. Yes, um, uh, to, who, who, who has this weird speech like when they're boarding the Thunderhawk and even <laughs> even like the Remembrances who are not military have to say, dude, we're, we're escaping right now. What are you doing? Um, but yeah, they, they also steal another Thunderhawk because the... As Horace mentions, the they might want to review the, uh, the security the, procedures. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Like that, 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 that was a good bit. He's like, he's like, it seems like anyone can steal a Thunderhawk from us. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, they're they're heading off um, with uh, Garrow on the Eisenstein, which leads into the the book Flight of the Eisenstein, which personally I'm quite excited for. I, I quite like to see how they manage to make a book entirely in montage. Uh, yeah, maybe we can get on that book. I was personally, I'm lukewarm on Flight of the Eisenstein, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, yeah, because Eisenstein's trying to fly back to Terra to warn the Emperor of the uh, Horus's uh, trait, uh, turncoatness. Alrighty, um, any final points for part two we want to throw in? Or because we gotta get to part three, which is the inevitable tragedy uh, where a lot of our favorite characters, characters we've come to know and love and grow fond of, uh, unfortunately, meet their end. Well, I think we've, we've covered uh, part two. I mean, I just love the moment where the, the extremely kind of emotionally uh, uh, meaningful part where Cinderman prepares a great speech and he looks at it, looks back to the people and he's like, oh, what I've written, it's so fake and inauthentic. So he like balls up the paper and throws it away oh. <laughs> and then does this amazing speech. And I just oh. want to see one of those scenes where someone throws their paper away. And then realizes, like, about 10 words in that, oh shit, maybe I should have gone with the prep thing. I'm, I'm starting to ramble here. Um, right. Yeah, that, uh, that's, that's a classic, like, uh, Hollywood movie moment. It's just kind of like, I need to speak from the heart. Uh, screw this prepared bullshit. I mean, like, this book is full of them, though. Um, but that's why it's a fun space opera melodrama. I love that. Which, but that's why it makes it all the stranger that they don't, like, follow a save the cat style beats system where the protagonist actually do. has an arc. And not the kind of 
keep sort of switching who the protagonist is. Um, but yeah. I mean, that's kind of like a Black Library 40k issue in general, where you kind of have to bounce around multiple characters, but uh, well, so... Uh, I didn't which... feel it in the last two books. For all of mm. False God's faults, I felt like it, it was very clear whose journeys it was about. It was about Horus, it was about Loken, and Carcassy in a way, and, and a few other kind of like uh, ancillary characters, but it didn't ever feel unfocused in its kind of like the the resolutions of the character arcs were not always uh successful but in terms okay. of structure they were there they just didn't execute with well, here it's like <laughs> in some parts they didn't try uh I, i've never been a bit a big a man who's uh too big on structure as as somebody who who adores terence malick films especially his later period ones like tree of life and that kind of stuff so structure to me is not a huge a requirement for me so like just like hitting like emotional beats is far more important to me well okay yeah so and i will stop going on about this but it's almost like you you can't have it both ways where you like it for its kind of um uh its adherence to a sort of melodramatic classical story um and yet it fails to deliver on those classical beats in many cases and at that point you're kind of like well it's like a coen brothers movie <laughs> <laughs> I, I i would really love to see the coen uh a coen brothers take yeah, no, on the 41st absolutely century. jesus christ yes we, we need oh to, my god uh, john goodman as horace and uh <laughs> john blake nelson as Fulgrim yeah. and yeah now i mean we already got our horace heresy movie with uh barton fink uh where, <laughs> where john goodman yells at uh john Turturro <laughs> in the thing as the flames behind them you know uh, uh with john Turturro, barton fink as uh the emperor so whoa and uh, yeah well like so we kind of come to our inevitable tragedy where Tarvitz, Loken, Targadon, and Lucius at the time are basically defending a never-ending onslaught of traitors because as we learn Angron uh at the first sight of seeing that any loyalists survive basically takes his world leaders takes his thunderhawks and goes straight to the ground to uh, annihilate anybody left uh this puts a huge wrench in uh, Horus's plans He's the Charlie uh, Kelly of the gang. He just screams <laughs> wildcard bitches and jumps out of the spaceship. Yeah, I, that, that, was a, that, was a, that was an awesome bit. It's like they literally blow the Thunderhawk out of the sky and Angron just like comes out fully emerged, <laughs> just like ready to murder, like running. That's a great bit. Yeah, that, he, he is too OP, but I love him for it. I love Angron. Like, unironically, I love Angron. <laughs> um... Yeah, he's just like, I don't give a fuck. He just comes out of a blow of the Thunderhawk. It's a great moment. Uh, you know what, this movie, this book's a classic. Never mind. Right up there with the Mice and Men. Um, uh, okay, so we have Tarvitz, uh, So, And this, this throws a wrench in um, Horace's plan where, you know, he just wanted to bombard them and just be done with it, you know. Uh, he, he just wanted to do virus bombs, set the virus bomb alight, and then just, you know, do a little artillery shell at the end. Uh, but but as we know, Angron throws a wrench into those plans, so he decides to do a show of force and kind of care more about the symbolism of it and kind of doing like, oh, this was my plan all along thing and not appear mm. weak to Mortarian or Angron. He's like, okay, well, Eidolon, take your forces and go kill these loyalists, which the loyalists managed to hold out for an insane amount of time. Uh, you know, three days, right? It's, it's yeah, it's... Yeah. It's not there for months, but yeah, they're, they're on there for three days trying to hold out to wait for reinforcements, wait wait for the wait. Eisenstein to, to call up you know, Big Daddy. Right. 
Um, yeah. Just Tarvitz as well. Like he's he's the one who's kind of taken charge. Yeah, it, it, insane be, for in comparison because of like what they were dealing with, which is basically like almost four legions of space marines versus like a three hundred versus like a three hundred uh, space astardes kind of uh, hmm. scenario. Yeah, and the the other side has tanks and land raiders and eventually a titan and yeah, it's, yeah, it's like full on like total hopeless lost cause. End of um, what's it called? Saving Private Ryan kind of deal. There, except no, no plane shows up at the end to blow up the tank. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Just, just full on. We're all gonna die. We go out, go out fighting. Just you love to see it. That, that's what I want. This yeah. Is how you do it. Yep. Yeah. Because uh, uh, you're kind of given like a little bit of hope at first because because they're defending so well. It's like, oh, you know, maybe maybe like the Raven Guard or the uh, maybe maybe the Raven Guard or the Iron Hands will you know come and save them. Uh, maybe like Loki and Torgadon and Tarvitz, like they'll be actually be saved. But as we discussed, Lucius decides to pull a double traitor, <laughs> and uh, because he wants to remain into the Legion, gives Eidolon a call from a decapitated chaplain's head, and nice. basically. Does turn code again? Yeah, Lucius just absolute MVP of this. Just <laughs> er- everything he does is great. He is the complete disaster bisexual we all need in this book. He <laughs> loves everything he does. Uh, he clearly has borderline personality disorder and is just really great at it. So he's the person who starts the party in like a dangerous direction and then walks to another room and calls the cops on the party. <laughs> yeah, that's why we love him. He, yeah, he has no emotional consistency. He freaks out over the tiniest microaggressions that barely exist, except in his own head, and ends mm-hmm. up like destroying the galaxy for it. Oh we, yeah, we need that. Yeah, he's, yeah, those, he those, those he's so good on Twitter. He, we need him. He needs to get an account. He needs to start posting. He would have the most amazing takes. I, 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 I'll say that Eidolon would probably be even funnier on Twitter. Like the, the lines he has in this book, like there's a moment where someone walks up to Eidolon and and I think it's with the, the Thunderhawk scene. And they're like, oh, we, we have a problem. And he's like, do not speak to me of problems. And it's like, <laughs> what, what, what position do you think Commander is? Are they yeah. only supposed to like give you good news? Well, I... well they're making him do emotional labor by having to do <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Idolon is one of those like wellness influencers who's like if if your friend is uh, has just had all their par- their both their parents die and is sad and they want you to come over and look after them, they're making you perform emotional labor. You need to cut them out of your life immediately. <laughs> or, uh, uh, yeah. Oh, what's that? I, I saw it's brilliant. Um, thing on on uh reddit about um if your boyfriend dumps you then uh, take his phone and call his mother and tell tell her that he's dead what um, <laughs> jesus christ is yeah. this like from our relationships or our advice or some shit i think, I think it was our insane people of facebook and um yeah that that, that that's Eid- eidolon's whole deal he would totally do that yeah uh, lucius too um, lucius yeah. would probably like also set the person's car on fire yeah, I, I do love like the eternal uh, bits of Lu- with Lucius, where he's just like, where Tarvitz is like, you did like a, you did a fine job, just kind of like doing a casual remark. And he's just like, fine, just fine, <laughs> and just like it's just like how he stews on like every like like that he's not literally praised every second of his life for doing everything. He's like, and he's like going back to like his old. Re- his old victories of like 24 hours ago. He's like, I killed Prawl. He's like, I killed the chaplain. <laughs> he goes like, yeah. what, what about Brilliant. me? 
yeah, he, he needs constant validation. And if he doesn't get it, he will have a temper tantrum that will kill thousands. <laughs> that I kills love, everyone. Yeah. Just, I, I love it. He's so good. I want to be my best friend, even though he will inevitably betray me within seconds. <laughs> it's just great. Lucius says the messy bitch as he is, uh, calls Eidolon and kills his own men to create a opening for Eidolon to basically flank the loyalists. And of course, eventually Tarvitz realizes a betrayal. We have a good old knife fight where Lucius gets his ass kicked the very same way in a nice callback from the first book. Yeah. So, um, like this is the bit that I, I, that uh, counter is actually being a bit subtle, where the way in which uh, Lucius gets sucker punch is not only reminiscent of um, the, uh, the the Loken part, but how he had to modify his own tactics previously when he's fighting the Palace Guards, where um, Tarvit can't win. He just kind of jumps on him starts punching in the face. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and then Tarvitz is kind of saved at the last minute because he had called for loyalist reinforcements, who then blast uh, Lucius with a bolter. But as all good uh, villains, you know, he he, snick, he twists his mustache, he snickers away to fight and betray another day. Yep. And that's, that's good because I like him. And, and Lucius will literally never die because he can't, and he's a chosen champion of Sinesh. So you're in luck, Gareth. He'll literally never die. Yeah, this is what you want. Just an endless source of messy bitch drama. Just yeah. going throughout the universe with his, with his whip and his cool sword, just like dunking on the haters and dabbing on them. So yeah, yeah. we love it. Yep, we, we salute a messy bitch. And then we come to the final confrontation with Loken, Torgadin versus Aximon Abaddon. Where... Oh, I- yeah, specifically, it's um, uh, Aximand fighting Torgadon, so it's that that little pair yeah. up, and then kind of the big title fight we've all been waiting for: Loki versus Abaddon. Their their sexual tension finally comes to a head, and um, uh, like like all oh, maybe uh, I read that wrong, but uh, they, yeah, they just go at it and um, mm. yeah, end up impaled. Yeah, well, uh, well, uh, Tor- uh, Torgadon gets his head unfortunately sliced off by Aximand. And the book takes great strains to point out that Aximand is full of regret and doubt now that he's killed uh, Torgan. Like, he actually sheds literal tears, which I don't know if that's the first time tears have been shed by an Astartes in this trilogy so far. I'd have to go back about it, but this one was obviously very notable. And then uh, Abaddon's kind of, like, about to do the killing blow on Loken, but the Desiree uh, winds up <laughs> carelessly crushing the building they're in. And uh, Loken winds up basically crushed under the rubble. And then Horus finally gets his, you know, orbital bombardment one last it's, time. It's literally a Monty Python scene transition. Oh, I'm literally just going to say that. Damn it. Okay, so you, you guys have been defending this, right? So did you think Loken versus Abaddon, this kind of final confrontation, did that work for you in an emotional way? The characters kind of um, drifting together in their, their, their inevitable... Uh, their inevitable resolution of the simmering hatred did that work for you? i mean it kind of has to right it, it's the well yeah 100 inevitable uh outcome of the last two and a half books like you know it is it's like it can't work because it's it's the end point it's, it's like saying the letter z doesn't work but the rest <laughs> of the alphabet does well, I mean, like I would compare this book very much to the last season of Game of Thrones. I think this is possibly a bit better because uh, last season was iffy. But in the same Whoa. way, you've got disappointing um, wrap-ups of storylines, which are kind of inevitable. Like you could argue this is very similar to the Jamie Cersei kind of um, 
uh, spoilers, I should say, <laughs> b- before. Um, and then obviously you've got the the, the same city destruction uh, going on. Um, oh. But I don't know, like uh, Actiman and Torgadon, that at least functions on the back of the previous book. Actiman was quite good in False Gods. Uh, the, the little we saw of him, you could really kind of understand his um yeah his uh his his conflicted nature um and that's kind of continued through here but out of curiosity because um i mentioned khan and there's this really shitty scene um that Mm. happens in the third part where khan pops up and loken and him have a little exchange where loken is like what's happened to you and it's like you've met this person once why do you care and it's like (laughs) why is that not a badden what it just feels so strange in a structural way, like right. a moment which should have been between two kind of mortal enemies is just replaced by some book who you have to set up because there's an ongoing story. Yeah, be- well, because Karn oh, exists yeah. as a model in the 41st century, and uh, that's definitely a weakness that they. Uh, I don't even know why Karn was on the ground, like because he has to exist. He has to make it to the siege of Terra, so it's like I don't even know what the point of. And, and he gets Joe. Like, have you seen that scene in Joe Meets Black where? Um, Brad Pitt kind of gets um you like, mean meet Joe uh, Black? Yeah, meet yeah, sorry, meet Joe Black, where uh, Brad Pitt <laughs> gets gets triple tapped by a car. And that's kind of what Khan ha- yeah gets uh, with a rhino. <laughs> yeah, he just gets a bed. <laughs> oh um, and it's and it's set up as like uh, oh, is he alive? You know, he's he like a, wriggling he away <laughs> impaled as yeah. he's driving. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that scene was like I'm like not saying like this book is perfect and stuff, but um, yeah, that scene wasn't too great. Uh, for yeah, both story beats and character reasons. Maybe I'm just yeah, I may I may be just disappointed because there were moments where you could kind of see how further rewrites could actually bring this into more elegant focus, and it felt rushed in a in a sense of actually kind of delivering on. But yeah, um. I mean, as you say, because uh, the Axiomand and Torgadon part, where you have his regret, that does seem to work. Uh, and I like the Logan Abaddon fight. Uh, short and sweet, kind of as started fights are. Uh, it does get a little bit lost in kind of like the, the Terminator armor porn. Of kind of like, oh, look how fucking tanky this is. Like, mm. look how like look how fucking strong this is. Uh, it does get a little bit lost in those weeds, but for the most part, it works for me. Is I mean, like, is it like the as uh, as insane or like as emotionally heartbreaking as you want. Well, no, not really, because the series hasn't been particularly kind to Abaddon, who's just kind of always been an asshole. So yeah, and we know where he goes. Uh, just like Khan and Lucius and everyone, he's a he's in the forty first millennium too. So it's not like it's not like he's going to die. We know where this is going. Yeah, the drama has been kind of drained out. I mean, it's been yeah. it's, it's been like drained out twenty years ago when a character was created. Yeah, but, um, yeah, and, yeah. That, I mean, that's en- what... endings are always bad. Like, there's never a, a good ending. Like the the bits of any any text ever that you actually like are all in the middle. But same with Game of Thrones. Again, it's just you you can't do a good ending to that. There was there was nothing that the Weiss and Benioff could have written that would have been satisfying. So yeah, they just had to kill off characters for some cheap heat, and um, yeah, just close the shutters on the whole thing and just hope no, no one remembers it in a couple of years. Which yeah. is kind of the same thing happened here. We 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 get some cheap heat by killing off your faves. We get a, we get a nice betrayal because that's always that's always some good good little bit of, bit of heat there as well. Uh, but yeah, we, we can't. You're never going to have a really great summation to anything, especially a free a free. Book, epic space opera 
Unless it's the TV show The Shield, in which case you, you create the best ending of any TV show ever made. I'm so... Didn't that just get cancelled after two seasons? No, no, the the, <laughs> the Shield went for a, a full seven, and it's and the its ending is properly, properly. But yeah, sorry, that's just me ranting on about the Shield again. And it's, but seriously, like this, the, this book is the uh, the 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 Vic Mackey killing uh, Terry moment. This is the, the the real inciting incident, the Istvan moment of the the series. The Horace Heresy guys, uh, there are too many parallels. You gotta watch it if you want to see a Horace Heresy TV show. No, 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 I won't do that. All right, so that's kind of really about it with Galaxy of Flames. Um, it's not. It's kind of like it doesn't have like as strong. It's not as consistently strong as Horus Rising, or has like the really high points, and it's not as like weirdly bad or fails like False God does. It's just pretty consistently good, uh, by my standards at least. It does what I want. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It- it delivers what you what you need in this. Like you're not gonna it, coming back to what we said at the very start. It, it's workmanlike, which is yeah. better than um, the previous one, which was yeah. bad. You know, mm-hmm. this is just someone getting the job done. The uh, part two was someone kind of failing at doing their job. Mm-hmm. So I know, yeah, like, yeah, I I I I get your arguments. I just had more fun with someone trying harder and coming up short than someone hardly trying and then also I would say he's hardly trying it's just that his ambitions aren't as high yeah i mean like i i am putting in a pithy way obviously there is graph that's gone into this i'm not saying it's like it just uh i don't like it as much as you guys which is why i'm, I'm teasing out uh kind of why and i think it comes down to a, a plot which has the worst it's kind of the worst confluence of being predictable but things still feeling out of place if that makes sense like i would have preferred if um if the beats landed better and it had had this kind of conventional uh predictable structure and then at least i i could enjoy and and feel safe that the story was taking me uh to places where i kind of expected and needed it to go or the alternative would be a more unexpected and uh is kind of uh, expectations of version thing and it was sort of the worst of both worlds um I, I would still say it's readable like i i would give it i don't know like a five out of ten maybe um jesus oh no one gets things five out of ten that's just anything over over seven under seven may as well be zero i, I would give it 7.1 which is technically the lowest uh rating you can give something without just giving it zero but it's still you know it's still okay this is an okay book in a yeah. 54 book series, which is probably mostly bad. Mm. Yeah, I maybe, mean, like, maybe I have to put it up to a six because it does pass the Bechdel test. Um, mm. Only just. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, like, I don't think everything has to be either great or shit. Uh, I think, I think it's, we should allow. Yeah, it does. That's should... how you get takes. You <laughs> I, just know, I, I know. Go completely insane about everything. Yeah, this is either the greatest book ever or the worst book ever. It's fine. It's the, the the book is good. The book is fine. It's not great. You know, it's not going to change your world. You're, you're probably not going to remember it for too long. But if you want to just complete the series and you know just find out the stuff and finish this nice little space opera, you're not gonna you're not gonna leave angry. In uh, in my mind, like I enjoyed it. I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, most of the readers who are uh, listeners <laughs> now, you can you can get me on that. Uh, most of the listeners of the podcast. I think we'll uh, enjoy this because it's fun. It's satisfactory and it does 
what a black library book needs to do and kind of no more than that. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It's, there's it's workmanlike. One, there's one quote that, um, uh, if it's okay, I, I'll just quickly read out that could be worth considering. It, it kind of goes back to um, the discussions of, of, of fascism which we had in the last uh, episode, but which kind of fall very much between traitors and loyalists of, of that opposing side of it. And it's what Garrow's interaction with um, Tarvitz when uh, Garrow is considering whether to take his side. And it's right after he has, and he says, um, uh, why is it, so this is Garrow, why is it that men have to die every time any of us tries to do what is right? And then Tarvitz says, because that's the imperial truth. Um, and hmm. that yeah, does good. kind of sum up the like faintly fascistic uh, everything is built on bodies of sacrifice kind of ideology that we have to accept among the good guys but there are times in which this novel embodies a you know um the the heroic aspects that you kind of go with like with 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 Tarvitz and his defense that um yeah i mean you i don't know about you two but i found myself at times just unironically rooting for Tarvitz and all this kind of thing no, no matter the the issues i have with the imperial truthers um, no Tar- Tarvitz is a good character and he's likable and he's definitely a lot more fleshed out in this book than any of the other books yeah he's a, he's a good person he's even mm-hmm. a bit of a marty sue at times in terms of just how good and noble he is a bit like loken in that regard yeah, I think it's kind of the thing where just because you like a character doesn't mean you have to like the system that they exist in. Like, objectively good people can exist in an awful system. Um, maybe we could deal with that like another time, kind of just like how some of these books unironically un- embrace that the Emperor in the Imperium itself is a good thing that's actually worth fighting for versus just uh, good people fighting in an awful system. Well, would you say that this book um has an awareness of that i'm not saying the fact that it doesn't is a yeah like i'm not saying it's a bad book because it doesn't have an awareness but it doesn't is my point it it doesn't have an awareness the closest it gets to a conscious is when kyle cinderman kind of does his you know quote unquote off the cuff speech where he kind of talks about the violence of the crusade yeah but but he's saying it it was good when we were assimilating people while giving them a choice not to uh yeah die under a halo gunfire yeah it's Uh, kind of yeah it, it's like the the people who say that like like america was great under obama or like before trump like that america exactly was that, only yeah. problem like mm-hmm. america was only problematic when trump entered office and not the 200 years of imperialism and genocide and eugenics yeah uh, I, I definitely see that yeah no this book um unfortunately does not question that fascism it doesn't question the emperor that much mm-hmm. um and I'd, that, I'd say that saying, um, Graham McNeil does a better job than Counter in that. And I'll stand by that. No, no matter if you guys still think uh, that False Gods was worse. In this instance, False God did a better job. Yeah, but I mean, it, it could do a better job because it had the space to, to do that. In, in this book, like the sizzle comes from uh, big burly men having a last heroic last stand. Except they're having a heroic last stand for a fascist awful, system. Yeah, theocratic uh totalitarian god man you know every time they say for the emperor they mean like this monstrous being who's maybe a chaos god we don't know and um or maybe trying to become one or just is just generally one of the most evil beings in the galaxy but we've got to like go yeah for the emperor alongside them because otherwise the book doesn't work otherwise it's just yeah otherwise you're left the ss fighting each other for some reason (laughs) 
Otherwise, you're left with like an Alex Ross Perry movie where you're just kind of like where you hate everybody and every character is equally fucking despicable. <laughs> you're yeah. just like, I want them all to die. Yeah, yeah, we can't we can't do that. So we we have to be unsubtle and kind of not question things and and live in the characters' heads rather than like have a better view of things where we can actually start critiquing like this massive system behind them, which is objectively awful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. Uh... That's kind of all I really have to say about Galaxy and Flames. Um, mm-hmm. Gareth, uh, final thoughts on the book? Yeah, um, Lucius, DM me. Um, my games <laughs> are open. Um, otherwise, uh, yeah, it was just yeah, it was, it was a decent enough book for what it is. You know, it, oh. it is a tie-in to a game of miniatures generally played by spotty teenage virgins, including <laughs> myself. And um, but yet, it was it was not unenjoyable, especially in audiobook form. I think. I think these books kind of shine in audiobook form rather than uh, on the page, and I think they they work better as radio plays. So I'm probably hmm. gonna, uh, yeah, in the future, consume my uh, Black Library purely in audio form. Yeah. yeah, I I also had a good time listening to it. Obviously, you know, um, apart from the thing we mentioned, exceptions, yeah, but uh, but uh, yeah, generally the voice acting is very good. You know, the the, the um, Loken as. Uh, Jared Butler is a good casting choice, I think. <laughs> so yeah, feeling it. Alex? Yeah. Um I you know I, I felt like I kind of had to bring a more critical eye. Uh, not not critical in the sense of um I was analyzing, but just a, a more kind of negative outlook than both of you because I just didn't I had reservations about this. Overall, I I don't regret reading it. Like it was diverting enough. And I I know you guys criticize me for saying f- five out of of ten, but like I've I've seen and read plenty of five out of ten things. It's it's fine, you know. I enjoyed this book. It's it's kind of everything you want out of a black library book. It's pulpy. You got like high emotions. You got fun characters. You got that fun uh, space opera feeling going along. Um, a lot of the characters not as much sexism <laughs> in this book, which is a definite improvement over false gods. Yeah, we'll, or, we'll give or it racism that. unless you or, or to racism. It. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, the race, yeah, the racism is implicit in the amazing part. Uh, yeah. So, uh, two out of three recommended, and one is a tepid enjoyment of it. Alrighty, uh, all right. Um, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Uh, Gareth, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast again. To no problem at all. Uh, and thank you for taking the time out of your day to read the book and talk with us. Um, Gareth, where can they find you and listen to you more? Okay, uh, at Death Sentence PC, PCs for podcast, um, at, on Twitter. Uh, Death Sentence itself is on every major podcasting platform. Uh, SoundCloud would be preferred if you could uh, listen to it on SoundCloud if you have the choice. And that's that's just nice. And oh, obviously, rate and um, patch on and you know, give nice reviews. Give nice reviews to, to Sigmaskism too. Because they're yeah, good so um, yeah, be, be a good podcast consumer. And um, yeah, that's that's where I am, and we talk about books, but also heavy metal and leftist politics. It's like the most niche you could possibly be. Alrighty, um, of course we. This was the Sig Marxism podcast. Uh, you can find us on tw- you can find us on Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram at Sig Marxism Pod. Please send us your emails. Um, we're always interested in hearing from you, whether you like something, you didn't like something, or if you have any questions for us. Uh, podcast at SigMarxism dot com. Uh, rate and review us on iTunes. Get that up. Um, we're on every major outlet like Spotify, SoundCloud. Yeah, we're finally on SoundCloud again. iTunes and obviously the SigMarxism.com website. If you want to get in on the 
leftist uh, memeing and shitposting, feel free to go to the subreddit and message one of the mods and you can join the Discord family as we continue to shitpost and meme about it and do sad posting, all that other kind of stuff as well. Uh, so this has been another episode of the Sigmarxum Bad Daddy Chronicles 3. Uh, if you like that, let us know. And we'll after this, we're going to move on to Age of Sigmar. Um, actually, not Age of Sigmar, exactly. Uh, Alex, I will let you detail what our next book endeavor is going to be. So uh, our preliminary plan is to um, do the own kind of um, equivalent to the uh, Horus Heresy, but for um, kind of the fancy side of things. And so we'll be delving into the first book of the End Times, which is a much maligned se- uh, series. And speaking of uh, what, we, what, I, what I had issues here about um, slightly rushed writing, that is definitely going to be a, a significant part of the End Times because it was very much done to deadline. But there's interesting stuff in there that people don't know about so much because uh, it's got a bad rep and that's pretty much it. So it'll be interesting to delve into it. Um, that, that that won't be the next episode, but that'll be on our regular schedule of a book every episode four. every four. Uh, thank you again. Please check out Death Sentence. Uh, check out Sigmarxism Pod. Uh, thank you, Gareth, for coming again. And as always, Nationalized Games Workshop. Nationalized Games Workshop. Nationalized Games Workshop. By force, if necessary. So right afterwards, I'll begin raiding the Area 51 and getting shot in the head by a government soldier.